0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. And we're picking up today in our series, The Songs of Jesus, in which we've been plugging in the playlist of the songs that both shape Jesus' life, right? And that Jesus came to satisfy. And hoping that in the process, plugging in this playlist, these songs found in the book of Psalms would begin, continue to shape our lives as well. Last week, Jeff Lewis gave us a preview of where this book is headed by walking us through Psalm 119 with its focus on living under God's law and finding life in the lawgiver. But today we're going to backtrack a bit pick up where we left off two weeks ago, when we were in Psalm 72. Do you remember? For those of you who were here, it was a psalm. It was a psalm that was, as best we can tell, written by a man named David, as many of the psalms in the first two sections of this book were. Written by a man named David, but this one in particular was written about his son, Solomon, and about all his hopes and all his dreams of the kind of king Solomon might be. Hopes that were based on a promise made to David by God. The problem was, that promise, all the hopes and dreams that went with it, wasn't actually about Solomon. Which means that Psalm 72, and more generally, books 1 and 2 of the Psalms, of which that Psalm concluded, left God's people more than a little disappointed. Because can you imagine, rather than a a king who ruled over all and ruled for all time and, and ruled for their good... Rather than that, what they ended up with was a leader who ruled almost entirely for himself and eventually died like his dad. And though he attracted international acclaim, never ruled over anything like what was expected. Can you imagine the disappointment? So, to books one and two of the Psalms was added book three, to help God's people deal with the disappointment. And today we're going to look at the Psalm that opens that third book at Psalm 73. So, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Again, to Psalm 73, which we're going to begin, as we usually do, by reading it. And you can follow along with me again as I read from Psalm 73, verses 1 to 28. This is God's Word. It says this, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore... And find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And they say, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went in to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all his works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so easy In this world, to become disillusioned, disappointed, disheartened, and dissatisfied, ultimately to end up disenchanted and disgruntled with you. To look around at our world that is not the way it's supposed to be and assume then that you, as the one who made it, must have either made it wrong or be capable of making it right again. And yet I pray that even today, starting where this psalmist starts, that we would end up where he ends. I pray that we would know that the way things are, and the way things appear, are not the way things are always going to be. And I pray you do it through the power of your Spirit, speaking through the power of your Word, ultimately about the power of your Son, in whose name I pray. Amen. Does it ever bother you that bad things happen to good people? Not perfect people, not flawless people, but to those who in no way, shape, or form seem to merit the tragedies that befall them. And often tragedies of the most heinous sort. Like the nuns in the news this week. Did you see it? Who, after committing themselves to the service of God... Claim that then they were raped by the powers that be. Does it ever bother you? That bad things happen to good people and that for all of it, supposedly an all-good, all-powerful being does not intervene when his intervention is needed most. But not just when bad things happen to good people. What about when good things happen to the bad people? Just to add insult to injury. I was actually reading a book this week by that title, When Good Things Happen to Bad People, about one guy's take on the world's 50 most notorious villains who triumphed in life despite or because of their dastardly deeds. And many would make your skin crawl. One of the guys was named Yosef Mengele. You might have heard of him. He was the guy in charge of the gas chambers and crematoria at Auschwitz, who used his position both for his own pleasure and to further his research as a physician, but who escaped during the liberation by just a clerical mistake. And then lived out the rest of his days somewhat happily in the suburbs of Sao Paulo. Does it bother you? And that for all of it, a supposedly all-good, all-powerful God does not intervene when his intervention is needed most. If it does, you're not alone, because these are precisely the matters that the psalmist is grappling with in Psalm 73, written by a man named Asaph, who was appointed, had been appointed by David to lead the singing at Solomon's temple. He was their worship guy who perhaps never saw for himself the destruction of that temple, but whose words here became a comfort for those who did. That's why they were collected in this third book, after the destruction of the temple. And this is his psalm about how he came to understand one simple fact That the way things appear for now are not the way they're going to be forever. Today, this is what we're going to look at. First, we'll look with him at the way things appear for now. And then turn with him to look at the way things are going to be forever. So first, let's look with him at the way things appear for now, with bad things happening to good people and good things happening to the bad. And verse 1 is the setup, because in, in it, Asaph starts out with this core conviction of, of what he sees in the here and now. Uh, that which what he sees in the here now calls into question. So, so here's what he says in verse one. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Because this is and always has been the core of this guy's faith, a belief in, a conviction about the, the covenant faithfulness of God. truly. Truly, it has to be. God has to be good to those in Israel. That just like us today, and, and like we've even written into the very foundational documents of our church now, Asaph puts his faith in a faithful God who is faithful to his own, and particularly to those who put their faith in him, to those who, as he says, are pure in heart heart pure towards god this is the core of his faith believing that there is a god and that unlike some would suggest he's the type of god he has to be the type of god who is deeply concerned with the workings of our world because he's the he's the one who actually holds the scales of justice. He's the one who can wield the sword in His fist. Not some made-up God that the Romans came up with and sits atop our courtrooms. Or not some courtroom that could get it wrong. He's the one who holds justice in His hands. And it has to be so. It has to be so. Because He's the God who is. And He is a God who's good asaph says and yet this conviction is precisely what asaph's experience in the here and now calls into question as he says in verse two but as for me my feet had almost stumbled my steps have nearly slipped i almost fell away from the faith i was almost forced from the faith he says Because I looked around at the world about me, and what I saw didn't jive with what I supposedly believed. Ever feel like that? Looking out at my day-to-day and the state of the nation and the ragings beyond, my feet, he says, almost slipped, which could be as true for you as it was for him. Because Asaph lived in a kingdom where even the king, even Solomon, walked away from God. Yet seemingly prospered. And Solomon's story is complicated. I want to admit that on the front end. But go look at the final stamp on his life that's in 1 Kings 11. And you'll see that we shouldn't lose sight of of the fact that this guy shacked up with enough women to have a harem of 700. that was not the way it was supposed to be. And sure, Solomon built the temple, but alongside the temple, he built a palace for himself, nearly twice as big. And then in the shadow of the temple, he raised altars to the foreign gods of the foreign women he went out and got married to. Not least was his wife who he got from Pharaoh, the guy who taught him how to build his empire on the backs of his people. Asaph saw this with his own eyes, which may be what we're meant to hear echoes of in verse 3, when he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, good things happening to bad people, or at least to good people gone bad and prospering because they've done bad to those who remain good. Asaph saw it in his day, but we see it in ours as well, don't we? Because in our country, you don't even have to become king to have a harem. You can have a harem before you get sworn in. You can squeak by every indictment with your verbosity. You can attempt to tweet your way out of every accusation. This is our country. Not limited to just one individual. And tell me that doesn't wear on you. As someone who's put your faith in this supposedly faithful God. Make you wonder whether you signed up for the right team. Ever slip like that? Because it'd be easy if God stepped in every once in a while and saved the countless individuals who end up in their own little Auschwitz. It wouldn't take much to to just have those like Mengele accidentally trip into their own gas chambers. But so often, that's not what we experience. So often, it's the good who suffer from bad to worse, while the bad seem to do nothing but prosper. Can you sing it with them? And just to be clear, this word prosperity, it's that same word from Psalm 72. That same word that Solomon was named after, shalom. And yet the prosperity that God's king was supposed to bring to God's people, at least in Solomon's day, appeared like it was only being enjoyed by the king who rebelled against God. Ever make you wonder if you signed up for the right team? Just listen to some of Asaph's descriptions of the wicked. He says in verse 4, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. May not mean much in our culture, but back then when you had to work for what you ate, it meant something. They're the fat ones. We're all starving away. He says, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Everybody else loses their their savings on the stock market crash. But the wicked are making their millions when Enron goes down. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So that while I'm sitting here trying to do unto others, all they're doing is doing unto themselves. And getting fat off of it. He says their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And about it, they run their mouths all day long. You ever meet someone who lives like this? They can't shut up about it. He says they scoff and speak with malice. They loftily threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. So much so that God's people, verse ten, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, because of them, how can God know? He must not be paying attention. Is there even knowledge in the Most High? And even Asaph says, even Israel's worship leader says, I mean, can you imagine this? This is like Keith and Kristen Getty getting up one day and saying this. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Why? For they prosper. And all the day long, all I have been, all we have been, is stricken and rebuked every morning. This is the way things appear for now but this is not second the way things are going to be forever so in verse 15 asaph admits that if i had said i will speak thus i would have betrayed the generation of your children that I would have led them astray with my words, he says, as much as the wicked led them astray with theirs. But when I thought how to understand this, he says, it seemed to me a wearisome task, figuring it out, puzzling it through, and turning right side up what was upside down. It took work. It took some mental sweat. God forbid we ever think about these things in a broader way. He says, I had to sit down and look hard at this world and look hard at the next and puff my pipe a bit like Gandalf. And I didn't crack it, he says, until I went in to the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. Then I discern the end of the wicked. Not how it is now, but how it will be someday. And listen to how the tables shift with just a little shift in perspective. He says in verse 18 Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They're gone as quickly as the monsters underneath the bed with the simple flick of the light. Reading that book, it was interesting. One after another. There were some contemporary figures, but most, one after another, you would read about them living out their their days much longer than they should have on the suburbs of St. Paolo, right? But consistently at the end, they all die. Maybe not intervene now, That's not the way it will always be. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, God. I wasn't thinking about the future, not theirs or mine. You ever been there? Not thinking about the future? Not able to think about the future? He says, I was just like an animal, he says living in the moment, reacting to the moment, caring about the moment. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, he says. And you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. We'll do it. It's done. Because it's not present prosperity that matters. You can't judge life by that, not by it or the lack thereof. Life can only be judged by a prosperity that stretches on in to eternity. Because on the one hand, what does it matter? Flourishing now for a moment if you're going to fade the next. Which is why boasting about a prosperity you know for now apart from God makes no sense. Thank you, Hollywood. Thank you. But we might ask as well that on the other hand, what does it matter for us suffering for now if someday we will flourish forever? Because the only prosperity that does matter is the prosperity of being with God. Because that's the only prosperity that will last. Like Lewis said, you go after this world and you get nothing. You go after the next and the God of the next and you get everything else thrown in. Or like Eliot said, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So Asaph says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, he says, it is good to be near God. You hear the echo of where he began? remember what he said? Verse 1, Truly, God is good to Israel. But his entire perspective, which was then called into question by his experience, had been that the goodness of God was known primarily through God's gifts. But now what? having broadened His perspective to encompass eternity, having broadened His perspective according to God's presence, the goodness is no longer so concerned with the gifts as it is with the giver. How many times in life do we make that mistake of substituting the one for the other? How many times this week have we made that mistake of substituting the one for the other? Which is so right, isn't it? It's so right. I mean, think of your last birthday or Christmas. Sure, when you're young, the the whole excitement of the day is wrapped up in what you're going to get, right? We're at that stage now. We know that stage. But eventually you grow up, right? Eventually you get that it's not really about the gifts. And the gifts only enhance your day with the people giving them. And if the relationship isn't there, the gifts really only serve to ruin the day more by reminding you how bad it is. Doesn't matter what it is. You're going to reject it because you're not in relationship with the person who's giving it. But for the relationships that are flourishing... It doesn't matter how trivial the gift. It'll be treasured no matter what. I got a special box at home. It has nothing of value in it. But I wouldn't get rid of any of it. Because it's the stuff that matters most to me. Because it's about the people who matter most to me. Because it's really not about the gift at all. It's about the giver. So for Asaph, and I pray for you, where he ends up is declaring the goodness of being near to God. And and it is that. It really is a declaration. Because that's what he says in the last verse. That I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I was on the phone. I got a phone call yesterday from a friend in Austria a guy who was saved later in life he's now he's given up his american citizenship he's taken an austrian citizenship and he develops real estate over there but being saved later in life gives him one very unique refute feature about him as a believer he will talk to anyone about his savior i said what's the one thing you're you're looking to do at the church? What's the one thing you're hoping and praying about? I said that's the one thing I want most. That we would all have such a fresh experience with Jesus, that we would have such a fresh relationship with Jesus, that we would be like you. Where it wouldn't matter anymore that we've been around the block for how many years. We're talking about it like it happened yesterday. He's proclaiming it. He said at one point that if he had spoken, Asaph said at one point, that if he had spoken what was on his mind, he would have betrayed a generation of God's children. But now he says that without hesitation, he will tell of all God's works. Why? Because after going into the sanctuary of God and into the presence of God and putting God back in the equation, he came out with the understanding that God may not intervene in the moment we would like it to happen, but He will someday intervene for good. And that the way things appear for now are not the way they're going to be forever. It's interesting though that the shift for Asaph came when he was in the temple. Because that was the temple built by Solomon. The temple that would shortly after be destroyed. And that perhaps more than any other symbol in the ancient world served for God's people as a reminder that bad things happen to good people. And just as much that good things are left to be enjoyed only by the bad. And yet Asaph's song incorporated at the front end of this third book of the Psalms continued to be sung day in and day out until the day a greater temple showed up. When a man named Jesus would proclaim himself to be just that, the very presence of God on earth and would be a king who who would not, like others, prosper on the backs of His people but win for them a peace and a prosperity and a shalom by His own blood. And Jesus would prove once and for all that though on the cross the worst of things would happen to the best of people, that because of the resurrection, the way things appear for now are not the way they're going to be for us either forever. Let me just suggest as we leave then that this psalm ought to challenge us in three ways. To go to God's temple. To be God's temple. And to look forward to God's temple. And here's what I mean. First, to go to God's temple. Because that was the turning point for Asaph. And that has to be the turning point for us. When we're slipping. When we're about to stumble, that when all it looks like in life is that bad things are happening to good people and good things are only being enjoyed by the bad, and that even like with Solomon, when, when, our, when our best leaders seem to have lost sight of who they're supposed to be serving and who they're supposed to be shepherding, that's where we've got to go. You know, we've just watched in this last month officially now, the leaders of two of Chicagoland's largest churches lose their positions because they preyed on the sheep they were supposed to be leading. And many are now wondering once again, how could God not have done something about this? And yet, this is just more proof of how much we need God. So go to God's temple. Go to Jesus. He's the one who came, He's the one who changes everything. And remember what these men, these two leaders in the Chicagoland church, remember what these men seem to have forgotten that it is the giver and not the gift that matters most go to the temple second though be the temple because this side of jesus we have a unique opportunity to join with others in the work of bearing god's presence both with each other and with the outside world Which seems to make fresh sense of all this emphasis that Asaph is, is placing in this psalm on the importance of speaking. You see it all throughout. The importance of speaking. Whether it's the wicked speaking and bringing everybody down. Him holding his tongue from speaking. Or eventually speaking up. And just as many would say that we're all worshipers, it's because we are, in this sense, all worship leaders, right? Just like we're all worshipers, hardwired to to worship something. Likewise, we're all worship leaders because we are hardwired to worship in community. And So the only question is, what will we be leading those around us to worship? To worship with us the gifts? Or to worship with us the giver? To look around and dwell on the here and now? Or to look on into what will be forever? And hopefully, as we be the temple, we'll be leading people into the temple to go with us to the temple to Jesus. And then spending some time checking ourselves when we get caught up in serving the gifts rather than the giver. So go to the temple. Be the temple. And then lastly, look forward to God's temple. Because as much as Jesus was back then, and we are today, there is an experience coming when we will bask in God's presence, when we will sit before God's throne, when we will be renewed into God's image, an experience of that that will dwarf all of what we've known of it so far. been steadily raiding the chocolate that's been left behind after the women's Bible study. And, um, and I opened this one this week, and this is what it said. These little dove things, they have quotes on the inside. So this is the quote. It says, everything will be okay in the world in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. That means nothing for those still worshiping the gifts. It means nothing to a chocolate addict. How much more for us? How much more, though? How true it is for us that everything will be okay in the end if it's not okay it's not the end because we've been promised more in Jesus. I don't, I don't know how fitting that is for the world, but I know how fitting it is for us, for those who look forward to the way things are going to be forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today that you would be our God And that we would be your people. And more than anything, that Jesus would be our all. Our grace in the past, our faith in the present. And our hope for what's to come. I pray it in his name. Amen.